Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Jean Vanier is the founder of the Larch Communities. It's the French word for the Ark. He had a PhD in philosophy and taught for a short period, I think, in Canada, but he spent most all of his life, he took in a couple of intellectually impaired men and began a group home. These large communities now, it's a whole new way of communal living, and the idea is that it's not just that you're caring for the intellectually impaired, but it's an equal kind of, everybody has a gift and a giftedness. And Vanier was quite an unusual man. He was a very humble man, lived in a very simple kind of way, but he died on Tuesday. And he wrote in letters, he was still writing letters to friends, as he confronted death. He wrote of it as his death as a descent into what is essential. That that which is most hidden in me, deeper than all the parts of success and shadow inside me. So he confronted life in much the, the same way as he confronted death, living in community. You might say his was a life spent in essentials without pretense of any kind. And Vanier's picture that we have actually used at Forging Plowshares of living in community is a stripping away of the extraneous and confronting human brokenness, human poverty in open vulnerability and honesty. And his point is that apart from this openness, community is not possible, true community. I believe that Paul is saying something very similar as we come to chapter 14 of Corinthians. He's continuing his point about love. To be together you need to learn, he says, to be alone with God. But to be alone you must be fed by the life you live in community together. And each individual is to curb their individualism so that it might build up the body as a whole. And so Paul is not squelching individualism. Uh, He makes it, like everything else, though, serve the purpose of love in community, in the corporate body. And so the loving thing to do is to build up the body and to use the gifts then, including the speaking in tongues that he talks about, make that intelligible, make that something that will build up the whole body. So let's read together. I'll just read the first five verses here of chapter 14. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. 
And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. Now we're not really sure what speaking in tongues might have been. We probably should not confuse it with the modern Pentecostal movement. And we're not even sure that it was a singular thing. It's talked about differently in the New Testament. Some presume that it was some sort of miraculous gift that has passed away. And some say, well, it's a miraculous gift, but it's still valid for today. And the problem is, I, I'm not sure that Paul or the first century Christians made a sharp distinction between the miraculous and non-miraculous. That is, he's describing these gifts, and the idea is that you're all to pursue the gift of prophecy, and what he means by prophecy is probably a summation of those things that are intelligible in the community. And so what this tongues is, it involved something that passed beneath or beyond what can be understood. And Paul describes it, it in some way is a mysterious communion with God. But to say it's a mystery, it's not to be depicted as inherently unintelligible because he tells them you're to, to interpret it. You're to, in some way, make it intelligible. And the picture here in 1 Corinthians, he wants the people themselves that are doing this to make themselves intelligible. That is, we often picture this, oh, a third party would do this. But most scholars say that there was no third party idea that the one experiencing it interprets it. And so we might picture tongues as the deep, private, prayerful communion that Paul depicts that we read this morning in chapter 8 of Romans that we're all to have with God. And to have that communion that you're going to though point, keep in mind with an eye to doing this to feed the community. Romans 8 indicates that, that there is an isolated and suffering part to all of us, which in his description is the deepest sort of communion. Reading from Romans 8, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. <clears throat> this tells us that the private is not synonymous with being isolated. In fact, it's in our private self our, that we share life with God. So it's not as if we cannot get outside of ourselves, but this private interiority, which in some way passes beneath or beyond the intelligible, is precisely the place that God meets us. Paul says, he searches us and communes with us in the Spirit. Same language. So Paul is distinguishing here in 1 Corinthians, life in the Spirit and then that which is intelligible, and the one is to come from the other. And so Paul describes this prayerful, unintelligible experience as the spirit encounter. 
which we are to make, you know, we're to make sense of that. We're to make it intelligible. And this mystery that he talks about, it doesn't pass beyond our ability to, to symbolize it or to interpret it. And so the language here, actually he's saying the species of tongues, the kinds of tongues, describes then maybe this private communication. I'm being a little speculative here in bringing Romans 8 together with 1 Corinthians. So that what Paul may be describing and what the Corinthians may be experiencing is the same thing that he's describing in Romans. Now, he, you might, might also say, nah, and say, you're wrong. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. But I'm suggesting there is the possibility that the two things go together. That he's not, Paul is not in either place pitting the spiritual against the intelligible, but he's seeing the one feeding the other. The intelligible does not have its resources simply in what we can understand in human intellect that in some way this thing that we're a part of is more than we can grasp that shouldn't shock us and so we need to allow for the mystery of God Noam Chomsky I did a degree in linguistics at one time in my long useless educational experience and the primary person we studied was Chomsky who poses the possibility in linguistics that is that all languages share a grammar a deep grammar and the whole point is that any particular language lights up a portion of this deep grammar that we all have within us I assume as image bearers communing with the logos Christ perhaps this deep grammar is ignited in the peculiar image that each of us, it's unique, isn't it, to each of us, that we shine forth. And so God communes, isn't that what Paul's saying? He communicates with us, appropriate to who we are. And this uniquely shapes us. God must reveal himself through our individual hearts and minds. But this revelation, as it flows, it refracts differently shaping the character of the person receiving it the heart and the mind of the one in and through which this revelation passes and so I presume the deep grammar I think Chomsky is right that we that fits with the biblical image this deep grammar must have its origins in Christ in the logos in the one who was with God in John's depiction in the beginning the word through whom all things were created Creation itself has its origins in this word. This is modern science, actually. It's very interesting, you know, that the DNA, uh, it's constituted by information. Same thing with the high energy physics. The smallest particles of the universe are information bearing. We, when we lived in scuba, we actually had a particle accelerator there in town. It was a small one. And we had American physicists coming and doing whatever they do with a particle accelerator, trying to discover the smallest thing. But we also uh, got together one day to play baseball. And I thought it was kind of funny because here was some of the probably smartest guys in the world. 
And before the game started, we all got into an argument about the rules of baseball. We couldn't get the game launched. <laughs> I doubt that they agree upon how the world is to be decoded either. Scientists studying a lifetime with the most complicated particle accelerators cannot read, they cannot decode, but it's not to say we believe it's there. We could study for a lifetime. You know, Faith and I have been walking out in the park when it's clear and listening to the birds. I'm the dumbest bird watcher I know of, you know. I don't know what those birds are. But I suppose I could spend a lifetime listening to the simplest bird sounds, and I suppose all those sounds mean something. There's love sounds, there's warning sounds. You know, that's a bird, you know, think of more complicated animals. The sounds of whales, I don't know if you've heard it. It's beautiful, it's mysterious sounding. And we kind of understand, we can begin to break that code. But I don't think I will ever speak whale. But presumably somebody knows, or God knows. And so when Paul says that this is a mystery, or he uses the language of mystery, I think that it's something that can be put into language. It can be symbolized. The greatest mysteries follow the symbol system of the logos, of the created order. We know of God, I presume, only as creatures, and he communes with us such that this passes beyond our intelligibility, but not his. And so being created as image bearers means that we have this deep grammar, this language, that we're certainly embedded in English, in the language of the culture we're a part of, but aren't we also embedded in our communion and our communication with God? And the book of Revelation describes this communion as specific, as having a name, a secret name, that only God knows. God knows your name and no one else knows it. And some way, someday he will reveal to you this name. That's what Revelation describes. Our name, you know, when faith says my name, Paul, I can tell by the way she says it, you know, what, what comes next. Or there's a familiarity with, with it. And so too with our friends, our family members. But imagine when God speaks your true name. When we have overcome and received the name inscribed upon the white stone. And we enter fully into the identity by which he conceived us and has known us. When we learn our name, I presume it will be from out of the private communion we share with God because it says that we will know the name. To him that overcomes, I will give a white stone and in the stone a new name written which no man knoweth, saving he that receives it. In some way we will know it when we receive it. The true name is one which expresses the character, the nature, the being, the meaning of the person who bears it. It is our symbol, our soul's picture in a word, the sign which belongs to us and no one else. Who can name someone like that but God alone? For no one but God sees what the man is or what a person is, or even seeing that 
could express it in a name, the sum and harmony of what he sees. We have not yet received this name as we have not yet overcome, the book of Revelation says. But in overcoming, we get rid of, we surpass, we defeat. You know, this is Michelangelo's picture. You remember the big picture of David? And somebody asked Michelangelo, how in the world did you, are you able to carve these beautiful statues? He said, well, I just take away, I carve away everything that's not David. It must be a, not a departure from our life, from the shared reality we have, from our createdness, but rather groundedness in this place, this time, this particular group of people that we're a part of. This species of tongue is not separate from this reality, but feeds into this reality. George MacDonald puts it this way. Each will feel the sacredness and awe of his neighbor's dark and silent speech with God. Each will regard the other as a prophet and look to him for what the Lord has spoken. Each as a high priest returning from his holy of holies will bring from his communion some glad tidings, some gospel of truth, which when spoken, his neighbors shall receive and understand. Each will behold in the other a marvel of revelation, a present son or daughter of the Most High. Come forth from him to reveal him afresh. In God, each one will draw nigh to each. From out of the peculiar communion with God, each is to bring a prophetic word. Come and prophesy is Paul's call. He calls us all to prophecy. Not to compare to our neighbor, Paul says, but because the word we bring bears our unique identity before God into the body. In this body, we always count others better than ourselves. In fact, the others are the point, the purpose of our own aspiration to make ourselves intelligible. Our own well-being is tied up with others. This was Jean Vanier's picture. He said people come to community because he says they want to help the poor. But he says they stay in community because they realize they are the poor. There is no ambition, no competition in the openness of love as each of us is dependent on the gifts of the others. That's Paul's word to the Corinthians, his word to us. God has made us for the body. He's made us for himself. He's made us so that you know, my private groanings, my brokenness, which joins me in communion with God, is also joining me in communion with the body of Christ. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear. He's describing suffering, but suffering is of different order. He says you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Life together opens a space for our private groanings, which made intelligible is our prophetic word. Vanier came to recognize that the prophets among us, maybe the mentally challenged, they would be though only those stripped of the veneer of presumptuousness and pride. 
In community, he says, human weakness and vulnerability enables us to forge real connections. His fellow community members with intellectual disabilities, he says, instructed him with their consistent openness, their needs, joys, loves, and pain. He recognized that people are vulnerable who experience their pain and op uh, openly, but these people are at the core of community. In their vulnerability, they call everyone together. And over time, he says, we all come to discover, discover our own brokenness, our own fragility, realizing that they are also us. As Paul puts it, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. And not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. Living in community and Vanier's, you know, as he describes his preparation to die, it sounds like a very similar reduction. That will be all that remains when the rest is gone. My naked person, a primal innocence, which is awaiting its encounter with God. I think that that's always to be our mindset in our communion before God and our preparation to come to commune with others. That our groanings or our deepest essence is exposed because that's the point of contact with other people, but it's also the point of contact with God. Paul says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Our communion with God, our groaning, is a stripping away of the extraneous as we come to what is essential. As Vanier puts it, most hidden, deeper than all the parts of success and shadow inside me. We prepare ourselves to speak a word from God to our neighbor. Come. Let us prophesy. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.